Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hi there, friend. First, I just wanted to say thanks for showing up today. I am so glad you're here. So can I just jump right into this episode with some thoughts I've been thinking and am wondering if you are having some of the same ones too? A confession of sorts? Hearing Job's friends come after him with the same attacks over and over and over again has me exhausted and frustrated and truthfully even a bit angry at them. They are so certain their assessment of Job's life is correct that they refuse to hear what Job is saying in his own defense and instead are amping up their arrogance and anger at him for not coming clean to confess all of his supposed sins. Their lecturing and need to be proved right only adds to Job's already immense grief. It is starting to feel like they are trying to wear him down to see the situation from their perspective in the belief that until he sees things their way, nothing will change in Job's life. Yikes. Their words are starting to sound like the wah, 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 wah of Charlie Brown's teacher to me, for those of you who are old enough to recognize this analogy anyway. (laughs) All kidding aside, though, all these thoughts led me to wonder if there is any research indicating exactly how long Job suffered. Multiple places gave the same answer in indicating that we can't know for sure how long Job suffered, but we can reason that it had to be more than just a few weeks based on this breakdown of the book itself. One day of multiple tragedies and loss in Job chapter 1. An apparent gap in time between Job chapter 1 and 2. The time it took for the three friends to hear about Job and travel to visit him. One week of the friends sitting in silence with Job. The three friends speaking. The fourth friend speaking. Job speaking. God speaking. God commanding the friends to offer sacrifice. The departure of Job's friends. And Job praying. I know we haven't reached several of those points in our study, but felt it was important for us to realize this wasn't just a few days of loss and heartache here. Some have suggested the course of events took as long as two years, which would mean Job suffered for a very long time. Whether months, a year, or years even, we can know one thing with certainty. The many losses and the repeated attacks from his miserable comforter friends went on and on for an extended period of time. This long-term suffering caught my attention, so I spent a bit longer looking into that. Well, looking closer at the term long-suffering, actually. Truthfully, when thinking of this term, I was immediately reminded of my reading and study of It's Not Supposed to Be This Way by Lisa Turkhurst a couple years ago. You may be thinking right about now, this one again, and I would understand if you are, but this book and study meant so very much to me in the midst of some very difficult struggles and actually helped me reframe my thoughts about my situation and faith in God in a season of loss and long-suffering in my own life. So I felt I just must break in here quickly to say that if you have not read this book, you must do so right away. So much solid truth found within to help each of us as we navigate all the things, big and small, in our lives that are not as we think they should be. Okay, with that PSA now complete, let's listen in as I read from chapter six titled, It's a Little Too Long and a Lot Too Hard. I think it's important to note at this point in the book that I don't know when or how my circumstances are going to be restored. 
a soul-shaking silence and disappointment about my current situation is what goes to bed with me in the dark. And it's what's there with me in the middle of the night when I've had another nightmare. And this is the reality still there each time I open my eyes the next new day. And the next. And the next. I don't say this to invite you into any sort of pity party, but to say I understand how hard it is when deep disappointments linger on and on. You probably have a middle-of-the-night moment of wrestling with your own tears. The glaring disappointment of negative pregnancy tests month after month while your closest friends are decorating their soon-to-be-filled nurseries. The emptiness in your heart because that person you love doesn't seek to really understand you, rarely cheers you on, and doesn't seem to want to connect intimately with you. The draining frustration of never being the one chosen for the job or ministry opportunity you've dreamed about for a long, long time. The excruciating fear of watching your kids make poor choices no matter how hard you pray for them. The heartbreak of that friendship that fell apart despite your best efforts to hold it together. The painful symptoms of a chronic illness that leave you feeling weak, frustrated, and misunderstood. The weight of living with so much financial debt that you can't enjoy your life or the people in it. And in your most private moments, you want to scream words that you don't use around your Bible friends at the unfairness of it all. You too have memories that still hurt. Realities that make you swallow back tears. Heartache that pumps sorrow through your veins. Sufferings that seem forever long. And you're disappointed that today you aren't living the promises of God you've begged to come to pass. You're tired of this disappointment lingering a little too long and being a bit too hard. Tears stream down my face as I try to find my balance. God, I feel like I'm dying. Do you care? Are you there? How in the world can I reconcile the fact that you say you love me, but then you leave me here, in this middle place? Surely my cries for help will prompt God to make it better. But then, out of nowhere, I start to get assaulted by fire-tipped darts flying at me and piercing my already bleeding soul. It felt like too much. It was too hard. I ask a question I've sworn I wouldn't ask, but I can no longer keep it at bay. Why me? Sometimes all the homes around me seem to be bursting with laughter and love and a normalcy currently out of reach for me. I'm happy for them. I used to be one of them. But it's so hard to see the stark contrast of their lives and mine. We all have areas of life that seem to fall impossibly short. We thought this aspect of life would bring us great joy. After all, it does for others, but not us. The very thing we thought would burn so brightly with joy has turned out to burn us. And what makes it so maddening is that it doesn't have to be this way. Usually the most disappointing realities come from the most realistic expectations. An unmet longing from a realistic expectation is such a searing pain within the human heart. You know this whole deal should have and could have been different, but their choices were their own. Their desires, their brokenness, their selfishness, and their lack of awareness left your needs unattended. What seemed so realistic to you was met with resistance and ultimately a rejection by someone you didn't think would ever hurt you. I'm not a fan of pity parties rallying cry, why me? But it sure is understandable in these cases. And that's what it's like to be so very human, hurting, but still hoping. Hoping doesn't mean that I put myself in harm's way. It doesn't mean I ignore reality. No, hoping means I acknowledge reality in the very same breath that I acknowledge God's sovereignty. And I've learned one more important fact. My hope isn't tied to my expectations finally being met in my way and in my timing. No, my hope isn't tied to whether or not a circumstance or another person changes. My hope is tied to the unchanging promise of God. 
I hope for the good I know God will ultimately bring from this, whether the good turns out to match my desires or not. And sometimes that takes a while. Remember what we talked about a few chapters back? God loves us too much to answer our prayers in any other way than the right way, and He loves us too much to answer our prayers in any other time than the right time. The process will most likely require us to be persevering, patient, maybe even long-suffering. Long-suffering. It's not a word that I want to be part of my story, but as my friends have prayed for me, this word keeps bubbling up. Long-suffering means having or showing patience despite troubles, especially those caused by other people. Hello, God? Can I make some suggestions of really saintly people who would handle being long-suffering much better than I would? Remember, I'm the girl who is completely terrified of this whole deal. I want these devastating disappointments to go away today. I don't want this suffering to last this long. I'm just so very tired. I pray. No, I beg for things to change soon. And maybe they will, but maybe they won't. And that's why I feel compelled to write this chapter from a very uncertain, untidy place. I know I must walk through God's process before I see His promise fulfilled. I think I already said that in a previous chapter, but it's worth repeating when my mind keeps forgetting. And maybe you need to remember that too. Regardless of whether your long-suffering is because of something big or small, remember, pain is pain. And it's all relative in the scope of your own life. And God's promises aren't just for certain people at a certain low point. His hope extends into every and any size pit or pothole. Please don't think if your situation isn't catastrophic that you shouldn't process or bring it to our discussion here. Sweet sister, pull up a chair and pull out your journaled heartbreaks and I'll do the same. My disappointment needs a promise fulfilled and so does yours. You need to be tenderly cared for and so do I. We need each other. We need to remind each other that we will eventually get to a better place. I'm desperate to see a promise fulfilled right now. I want the promised blessing of Psalm chapter 40, verse 4. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. I forget that this kind of trusting in God is often forged in the crucible of long-suffering. God isn't picking on me. God is picking me to personally live out one of His promises. It's a high honor, but it doesn't always feel that way. I've got to walk through the low places of the process before I'm perfectly equipped to live the promise. We read about some of the low places of the process in verses 1-3 through of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. I want the solid rock on which to stand. But first, I have to wait patiently for the Lord to lift me out of the slime and mud and set my feet. The word set in the original Hebrew is quim, which means to arise or take a stand. God has to take me through the process of getting unstuck from what has been holding me captive before I can take a stand. I also want that new song promised here. Did you notice, though, what comes before the psalm's promise of a new song? It was the many cries to the Lord for help. The most powerful praise songs don't start out as beautiful melodies. Rather, they start as guttural cries of pain. But soon, the process of pain turns into the promise of a praise like no other. Keep walking. Yes, keep walking. One foot in front of the other. Catch your breath when necessary, but don't stop. Not today, not tomorrow. Jesus is here. 
don't miss this. We've talked about the process on the way to the promise, but we must not forget His presence in the midst of the process. The promise is a glorious hope to hang on to for the future, but it's His presence in the process that will steady our hope for today. I swallow hard. I put some visine in my very red eyes. I remind myself to breathe. I know He's placed people and things around me with great intentionality to assure me I'm not alone on this journey. So I look around for evidence of His presence. I find the first thing. It's a little blue and white booklet. Ironically, my ministry is knee-deep in a study of the book of Job right now. The daily experience guide we print for the participants of our study is right here with me. It's called Suffering and Sovereignty. And I know this is an irony. God had it well planned. I feel like Job. The Lord was with him, but everything about his circumstances begged him to no longer be with the Lord. And here's what I imagine would have been the hardest part of being Job, being completely uncertain of the outcome. We read the book of Job in the context of knowing the restoration that comes at the end. It helps us to not feel the true intensity of Job's pain. And while I know in my head that God will somehow, someday turn all this around for good in my life too, my heart isn't so sure some moments. The intensity of the pain gives me a propensity to doubt. God, give me relief from my unbelief. I flip to the part of the little blue and white book that reveals the end of Job's story, and I open my Bible to all the scriptures listed. I borrow his good ending. I tuck it in my heart. I preach these scriptures of hope to myself over and over again. Job chapter 42 verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the ones who misjudged Job, didn't tell the truth about God, and added so much hurt on top of Job's pain, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Job chapter 42 verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Job chapter 42 verse 16. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. God put Job's story here to help guide me through the process of my story. And God put that blue and white book here today, reminding me to look at Job's story as evidence of his presence in my process. I know it. If I were you right now, I'd be like, okay, I don't see a little blue and white book, so how do I know God's presence is here for me personally? Well, I pray my book, the one you're holding in your hand, is one of those things. God made sure this message got to you in the middle of whatever you are facing right now. But there are other evidences of His presence around us, I promise. God is often in overlooked places. We don't have to find Him. God is not far from us. We just have to make the choice to see Him and rightly attribute to Him the good that does exist. I truly believe that what keeps us on the path of long-suffering instead of veering off into the dangerous direction of wallowing is to wake up with great expectation of these little reminders of God's goodness. So even with a limp, I can take one more step. Just one more step is all I need to take today. And I can take this step because I'm assured of His presence in the process. And not only is His presence in the process, but there's also a purpose in the process. Long-suffering is long because you can't sprint through it. It's one step, and then another that might be more treacherous than the last. Getting to that solid rock from Psalm 40 might require a bit of a hike. Sometimes God lifts us up in an instant, and other times He wants to join us on a bit of a journey a process through which we can gain a little more strength and grit and lung capacity for what he sees we'll need once we reach that rock at the top. 
There is a purpose to the process, and it's called preparation. If God thought we could handle the promise today, He'd lift us up today. But if we aren't standing on that firm rock singing a glorious song, it's because He loves us too much to lift us up there right now. This process isn't a cruel way to keep you from the promise. It's the exact preparation you'll need to handle the promise. So many Bible verses speak to this process that produces what we will need when we step into the promise. Here are some of my favorites. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all of the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I love that we get to see in these verses that the suffering will end. He will restore us. There is a reason for this. He will strengthen us. He will make us strong in the midst of our feeling weak and there's a perfecting of us that is happening in the process. When we think the process of long-suffering is unbearable, we must remember it would be deadly for God to put us up on that solid rock before we are strong, firm, and steadfast. And it would be cruel for Him to require us to sing before we have a song. There is a purpose to this process. Yes, the process will be so messy, so full of slime and mud and mire and cries for help that you can't help but wonder— whether they are being heard or not. But they are. As I said before, God isn't far off. He's just far more interested in your being prepared than in your being comfortable. God will take every cry you've uttered and arrange those sounds into a glorious song. He will add it to His symphony of compassion. You will have a starring solo in which those notes birthed from tears will help ease the ache of another. Those around you will see you standing on a solid rock and hear the glorious echoes of good things bellowing from your belly. The enemy will shake and quake and shrink back afraid. He's terrified of that girl. He's terrified of you. You are anchored to the hope of God that so few ever truly find. You, dear long-suffering soul, are a Job of your time. One who will be misjudged and misunderstood. The enemy will try to trip you and rip you to shreds with the hurtful hisses that all this long-suffering is for nothing. Don't you dare listen. Close your eyes and breathe. You're brave and beautiful and hand-picked. Oh, my long-suffering friend, hang on. Keep walking, and I'll keep walking, too. Keep looking for his presence in your process, and I will, too. Together we will make it, 
And if you come across it through your long-suffering journey before I do, come cheer me on. Today, I'm still the girl in the middle, but I'm the girl who is one step further than ever before on my way to a really good promise. So, with all this said and our closer look at how God used seasons of long-suffering in our lives, let's put this very long episode intro to a close to begin our readings today as we once again hear from Bildad, Job, Zophar, and then Job once again. Before we begin, though, please note that I'm going to group the conversations between Job and each friend here by reading chapters 18 and 19, and then chapters 20 and 21 together. Hopefully that will all make more sense as we move forward in our study together today. Job chapter 18 from the Message Translation of the Bible reads, Bildad from Shuha chimed in. How monotonous these word games are getting. Get serious. We need to get down to business. Why do you treat your friends like slow-witted animals? You look down on us as if we don't know anything. Why are you working yourself up like this? Do you want the world redesigned to suit you? Should reality be suspended to accommodate you? Here's the rule. The light of the wicked is put out. Their flame dies down and is extinguished. Their house goes dark. Every lamp in the place goes out. Their strong strides weaken, falter. They stumble into their own traps. They get all tangled up in their own red tape. Their feet are grabbed and caught. Their necks in a noose. They trip on ropes they've hidden and fall into pits they've dug themselves. Terrors come at them from all sides. They run dazed and confused. The hungry grave is ready to gobble them up for supper, to lay them out for a gourmet meal, a treat for ravenous death. They are snatched from their home sweet home and march straight to the death house. Their lives go up in smoke. Acid rain soaks their ruins. Their roots rot and their branches wither. They'll never again be remembered, nameless in unmarked graves. They are plunged from light into darkness, banished from the world, and they leave empty-handed, not one single child, nothing to show for their life on this earth. Westerners are aghast at their faith. Easterners are horrified. Oh no, so this is what happens to perverse people? This is how the God-ignorant end up? Then in chapter 19, Job answered, How long are you going to keep battering away at me, pounding me with your words? Time after time after time, you jump all over me. Do you have no conscience abusing me like this? Even if I have somehow or other gotten off track, what business is that of yours? Why do you insist on putting me down, using my troubles as a stick to beat me? Tell it to God. He's the one behind all this. He's the one who dragged me into this mess. Look at me, I shout. Murder, and I'm ignored. I call for help, and no one bothers to stop. God throws a barricade across my path. I'm stymied. He turned out the lights. I'm stuck in the dark. He destroyed my reputation, robbed me of all self-respect. He tore me apart piece by piece. I'm ruined. Then he yanked out hope by the roots. He's angry with me. Oh, how he's angry. He treats me like his worst enemy. He has launched a major campaign against me using every weapon he can think of, coming at me from all sides at once. God alienated my family from me. Everyone who knows me avoids me. My relatives and friends have all left. House guests forget I ever existed. The servant girl treats me like I'm a deadbeat off the street. Look at me like they've never seen me before. I call my attendant and he ignores me. Ignores me even though I plead with him. My wife can't stand to be around me anymore. I'm repulsive to my family. Even street urchins despise me. When I come out, they taunt and jeer. 
Everyone I've ever been close to abhors me. My dearest loved ones reject me. I'm nothing but a bag of bones. My life hangs by a thread. Oh, friends, dear friends, take pity on me. God has come down hard on me. Do you have to be hard on me too? Don't you ever tire of abusing me? If only my words were written in a book, better yet, chiseled in stone. Still, I know that God lives, the one who gives me back my life, and eventually he'll stand on earth, and I'll see him, even though I get skinned alive, see God myself with my very own eyes. Oh, how I long for that day. If you're thinking, how can we get through to him, get him to see that his trouble is all his fault, forget it. Start worrying about yourselves. Worry about your own sins and God's coming judgment, for judgment is most certainly on the way. The Jesus Bible has this to say about what's happening in chapter 18. Job's friends were harsh toward Job. Bildad's speech can be summed up in five searing words. You got what you deserved. Bildad, along with Job's two other friends, concluded that Job's suffering was evidence of sin in his life. Job's friends' theology was not entirely incorrect, but their perspective was limited. They were right to think that scripture, especially parts like Deuteronomy 27 and 28, teaches that the righteous person can expect God's blessing and the wicked can expect God's curse. Both Eliphaz and Zophar mention that sometimes the wicked will enjoy temporary prosperity as Job had. They believe the wicked would be punished eventually, as the book of Proverbs teaches. The book of Proverbs actually talks extensively about the way God rewards the upright and punishes the wicked, as found in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21. As a description of God's justice, that's true. But the Bible never takes the leap that Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar do with Job. The Bible never says that everyone who suffers is wicked. The Bible never says that health and wealth are irrefutable signs of good behavior. Their theology was an oversimplified combination of multiple truths. Bad things are going to happen to bad people. Good things are going to happen to good people. And everyone will get what they deserve in the end. The problem with their theology was that it was too narrow in its scope and therefore was not flexible enough to accommodate real-life experiences. The three friends made a mistake in how they applied abstract truths to real-life experiences. They were right to believe in the end God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, but Job's friends did not have God's perspective on the situation. Good theology accounts for the complexities of Scripture and a huge range of life experiences. The truth is this, human suffering or happiness in this life is not proportional to sins, or good works. Sometimes the wicked seem to get away with wrongs, and sometimes the righteous experience terrible things that they did not deserve. The author of Hebrews offered a reminder that God does good things in unexpected ways. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 reads, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. God used Jesus' sufferings to bring about the ultimate blessing. He is always at work in the suffering of his people. The exact manner in which God is working may remain a mystery for now, yet eternity will show that he was always good, he was always in control, and he was always working to show his glory. And the Bible recap ties these two chapters together in this way. In chapter 18, Bildad speaks again. You remember Bildad as bad friend number two, the one who told Job he needed to repent? So now he's doubling down, just like Eliphaz did, with reminders that God punishes the wicked. This is a catch-22 because it not only means Job's suffering was punishment for his wickedness, 
but also that if he doesn't change his ways, more punishment is coming for him. But I love Job's reply in chapter 19. He continues to point to God's role in his troubles. He says things like, He has walled up my way so I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. These sound like really hard things to say about God, and yet in chapter 19, verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. This not only says a lot about Job, that he could believe this amidst all this struggle, but it says a lot about God. First, we see God's relationship with Job even on his worst days. Job doesn't just call God a Redeemer or the Redeemer, but my Redeemer. It's personal, intimate. Second, we see that God is a Redeemer. To redeem means to buy back. Job has hope that this isn't the end of his story, even if it's the end of his life. Job trusts that God will redeem this somehow. Third, we see that God is alive. My Redeemer lives. So many of Job's loved ones had passed away, but not God. He knew that God was still with him and would continue to be forever. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. I hope I have this kind of trust in God when trouble inevitably comes my way again. And storing up truth about him like we're doing as we open our Bibles together is one way to make sure our feet are on solid ground when the storms of this life do come. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty, adds these thoughts to our discussion of Job and his Redeemer in saying, Let's recap for just a moment what has happened in Job's life. Job lost his possessions, livelihood, and income. Immediately after that, Job loses his family and his health. Then his friends come to bring him comfort, but judge him and blame him for the tragedies he's endured. Some time has lapsed since the devastating waves of loss have hit Job's life. The shock is probably starting to wear off, but his grief and anguish are not subsiding. His friends have remained determined to see Job confess. In the midst of all of this, Job recites a refrain that is chillingly prophetic and hopeful. Job believes, perhaps because of all he's endured, that there must be more to our existence than what we see, feel, possess, or experience. His hope isn't that God would restore what has been taken. Job isn't hopeful that he'll one day have more children, and he doesn't ask to be reestablished among his peers. The deepest longing of Job's heart is to stand before the God he worships and adores, and he knows he will. Job's hope is in God alone, and his faith-fueled confidence is so resolute that he is prepared to see this suffering end, even in death. Job confesses that no one can clear him or stop his misfortune except God, his Redeemer, and his desire is to see his Vindicator face to face. Job is completely ready to meet his God, and somehow he glimpses there will be justice in the end, even when life feels the darkest and the places of crisis seem like a deep pit Our desperation cries out. But in the midst of despair, there is hope, and Job sees it through eyes of faith. Like the faintest flicker of a candle in the dark of night, Job confidently expresses that even if he dies, he will still have a Redeemer who one day will exercise judgment on the earth. The Hebrew word for Redeemer used here describes the action that would have been taken to vindicate an unjustly wronged individual. In the Old Testament, a Redeemer stood up for that person and defended their cause when they couldn't stand for themselves. A Redeemer took on the role of an advocate or champion for the suffering person to clear them of any wrong. Without a doubt, Job knows he has a Redeemer who will rescue, comfort, and vindicate him. And because Job's Redeemer lives, Job knows he will live again, even if it means after life on this earth is done. That is the hope of the resurrection. Job unknowingly points us to Jesus and his work on our behalf as our Redeemer. 
Jesus makes hope possible in the midst of our deep anguish and pain. He is our advocate and champion in the midst of unjust suffering. Jesus is our rescuer, our hope of resurrection, and our life. Jesus is alive, and one day he will vindicate every believer and declare him or her justified from all sin. It's like a salve to my soul to know with absolute certainty that when all said and done, I will see Jesus, and he will right every wrong. I know my Redeemer lives, and I will stand justified and vindicated before him by God's grace. Is this your hope too? Let's hold tight to Jesus and to the hope we have in him. Because I am so fascinated by Job's foreshadowing of Jesus in chapter 19, I want to share a bit more of my discoveries about what Job was declaring in verses 25 through 27. The Jesus Bible has this to say about Job's declaration about his Redeemer. Job's belief in God is amazing. Even more striking is how God allowed Job to get to the place where he could trust in God, even though his circumstances looked hopeless. God delivered Job not from his suffering, but through his sufferings. In the midst of battling his ignorant friends, something clicked. Through his resistance against bad advice from friends and through his persistent battle for belief, a new insight emerged. Job was able to confess and believe that God was with him. When faced with intense pain, God's people may not learn why as much as they come to know who. Job never received answers to all of his questions. What he really needed to learn was that God is the who he could depend on. In life, there is so much that happens that cannot be explained. In the midst of life's uncertainty, God knows what people need. Jesus is holding on to his people, and this relationship allows them to endure to the end. God was not risking Job's faith. God was refining his faith. Only when everything is stripped away can a person evaluate what truly matters. After suffering unimaginable loss, Job was able to confess, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Oftentimes, God's people do not learn that God is all they need until God is all they have. Without God, this life and this eternity that follows will be full of pain. But when someone trusts in Jesus Christ, God promises that all the sad things will one day be healed and redeemed. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Job's faith in the midst of the fight is a model for life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, as it reads in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. When people put their faith in Jesus, they can have hope that the way things are in the world is not the way that things will always be. Suffering and pain can be seen as temporary in light of eternity with Jesus. Listen in as I read that last part again, just to be sure we don't miss it. When people put their faith in Jesus, they can have hope that the way things are in the world is not the way that things will always be. Suffering and pain can be seen as temporary in light of eternity with Jesus. In other words, it's not supposed to be this way, and because of our Redeemer Jesus, it won't be. Oh, how I love this reminder of such an important truth, my friends. Amen and amen. Let's continue in our reading in the book of Job now from chapter 20. Zophar from Namath again took his turn. I can't believe what I'm hearing. You've put my teeth on edge, my stomach in a knot. How dare you insult my intelligence like this? Well, here's a piece of my mind. Don't you even know the basics, how things have been since the earliest days when Adam and Eve were first placed on earth? The good times of the wicked are short-lived. Godless joy is only momentary. The evil might become world-famous 
strutting at the head of the celebrity parade, but still end up in a pile of dung. Acquaintances look at them with disgust and say, what's that? They fly off like a dream that can't be remembered, like a shadowy illusion that vanishes in the light. Though once notorious public figures, now they're nobodies, unnoticed, whether they come or go. Their children will go begging on Skid Row. They'll have to give back their ill-gotten gain, and right in the prime of their life, and youthfulness and vigor, they'll die. They savor evil as a delicacy, roll it around on their tongues, prolong the flavor, a dalliance in decadence, real gourmets of evil. But then they get stomach cramps, a bad case of food poisoning. They'll gag on all that rich food. God makes them vomit it up. They gorge on evil, make it a diet of that poison, a deadly diet, and it kills them. No quiet picnics for them beside gentle streams with fresh-baked bread and cheese and tall, cool drinks. They spit out their food half-chewed, unable to relax and enjoy anything they've worked for. And why? Because they exploited the poor, took what never belonged to them. Such God-denying people are never content with what they have or who they are. Their greed drives them relentlessly. They plunder everything, but they can't hold on to any of it. Just when they think they have it all, disaster strikes. They're served a plate full of misery. When they've filled their bellies with that, God gives them a taste of his anger, and they get to chew on that for a while. They run for their lives from one disaster, and then they run smack into another. They're knocked around from pillar to post, beaten to within an inch of their lives. They're trapped in a house of horrors. They see their loot disappear down a black hole. Their lives are a total loss, not a penny to their name, not so much as a bean. God will strip them of their sin-soaked clothes and hang their dirty laundry out for all to see. Life is a complete wipeout for them. Nothing survived God's wrath. There, that's God's blueprint for the wicked, what they have to look forward to. Then in chapter 21, Job replied, Now listen to me carefully. Please listen. At least do me the favor of listening. Put up with me while I have my say, then you can mock me later to your heart's content. It is not you I'm complaining to. It's God. Is it any wonder that I'm getting fed up with his silence? Take a good look at me. Aren't you appalled by what's happened? No, don't say anything. I can do without your comments. When I look back, I go into shock. My body is racked with spasms. Why do the wicked have it so good? Live to a ripe old age and get rich. They get to see their children succeed. Get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their cows calve without fail. They send their children out to play and watch them frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes, have good times singing and dancing. They have a long life on Easy Street and die painlessly in their sleep. They say to God, get lost. We have no interest in you or your ways. Why should we have any dealings with God Almighty? What's there in it for us? But they're wrong, dead wrong. They're not God's. It's beyond me to see how they can carry on like this. Still, how often does it happen that the wicked fail, or disaster strikes, or they get their just desserts? How often are they blown back by bad luck? Not very often. You might say, God is saving up the punishment for their children. I say, give it to them right now so they'll know what they've done. They deserve to experience the effects of their evil, feel the full force of God's wrath firsthand. What do they care what happens to their families after they're safely tucked away in the grave? But who are we to tell God how to run his affairs? He's dealing with matters that are way over our heads. Some people die in the prime of life with everything going for them, fat and sassy. 
Others die bitter and bereft, never getting a taste of happiness. They're laid out side by side in the cemetery where the worms can't tell one from the other. I'm not deceived. I know what you're up to, the plans you're cooking up to bring me down. Naively, you claim that the castles of tyrants fall to pieces, that the achievements of the wicked collapse. Have you ever asked world travelers how they see it? Have you not listened to their stories of evil men and women who got off scot-free, who never had to pay for their wickedness? Does anyone ever confront them with their crimes? Do they ever have to face the music? Not likely. They're given fancy funerals with all the trimmings, gently lowered into expensive graves, with everyone telling lies about how wonderful they were. So how do you expect me to get any comfort from your nonsense? Your so-called comfort is a tissue of lies. Oh my. Poor Job. So in chapter 20, we hear Zophar's speech again revealing his false assumption that Job's losses and struggles were proof of his wickedness, that evil people only thrive and succeed for a little while. His skewed perspective led him to the conclusion that Job's suffering was the natural consequence of a wicked life exposed at last. Truly, who needs enemies when you have friends like these is a thought that's been coming to my mind repeatedly as I read these words. As they continue to struggle in trying to make sense of the reasons for what is happening in Job's life, I find myself thinking that we all seem to have some version of a little game we play where we try to guess what God is making with our lives. As I mentioned before, I often think of holding a piece of a jigsaw puzzle while trying to figure out the image when the cover of the box is missing. Such a mess to consider. Was it a beautiful landscape? An adorable animal? A cityscape? Who knows? From our perspective, it is an indistinguishable mismatch of pieces. But what is utter confusion to us is perfectly known and seen to God. He is looking at the entirety of his work with a vantage point of the whole image. We are only viewing pieces and parts, one at a time. These continuing arguments between Job and his friends remind me of this game I play in my mind sometimes, trying to guess what God is piecing together in my life and in the lives of others. Job and his companions are trying to guess God's plan. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study says, Job's friends are sure that God would never allow unjust circumstances to fall on a just man. The circumstances being Job must be unjust. Here in Job 21, Job looks at the real-life circumstances of people who are far from God. They are dismissive and defiant, yet they continue to prosper. Job argues that the wicked see their children prosper, their homes safe, and their lives free from calamity. From Job's perspective, the wicked are often spared the kind of heartache and grief he has experienced. In the middle of his argument, Job says, in chapter 21, verse 22, Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? Such truth. Knowledge comes from God. We don't tell him anything he doesn't already know. If only Job and his friends had stopped there. This is a defining truth that could have changed the conversation and let them see the hope of the masterpiece God was working on. I think what Job is saying is that God knows exactly what he's doing. Whether wicked or good people, whether blessed or afflicted circumstances, God is in control. He has a plan we simply can't see from our perspective. God has knowledge. God imparts wisdom. God judges rightly. In our suffering, God is doing something. We know this truth and believe this truth most of the time, but in the midst of suffering, it's easy to forget. In addition to forgetting that truth, suffering makes us desperate to know exactly what God is doing. What's the big picture he's working on? Is my life still a masterpiece or is it just a mess? Suffering isn't at all like the game you or I play in our minds sometimes trying to figure out how all of this fits. 
In those moments, we aren't just passing the time trying to guess what God is up to. We are often sad, lonely, hurting, and afraid, but our best guesses won't make the pain go away. In fact, if we get the picture wrong or begin to doubt that there's a masterpiece in the making, we can hurt even more. You may be looking at your life as a jumble of mismatched puzzle pieces, but there is a patient hand with tender, nimble fingers piecing together the masterpiece of your life. You can trust him. Don't judge the wisdom of his plan in the absence of the puzzle box lid. The Jesus Bible says it this way. Job's response to his friend's foolish words and accusations was simple. The facts do not support their theology. The facts show that many wicked people live a life that looks fairly comfortable. They seem not to suffer. They seem free from struggles. They actually seem to enjoy themselves. At the same time, many righteous people struggle in this world. They try to live for God, but life remains difficult. They give generously, but experience seasons when they do not have as much as they need. The theology of Job's friends broke under the weight of reality. The facts did not add up to their simplistic theological outlook. Many wicked people are not punished in this life, while many righteous people suffer from the cradle to the grave. It did not make sense to accuse Job of secret sin, while so many other people, who were clearly more wicked than Job, did not suffer for their sins. The world is unfair. Often the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. When people fail to realize this reality, they become rigid and untight in every way. Their counsel sounds much like the words of quote-unquote comfort that Job received. They fail to grasp the harsh reality of life in a fallen world, accusing innocent people of harboring hidden sin. So we have now wrapped up round two of all three of Job's friends advising him. He's now heard six speeches from them, and chapter 21 features Job's reply to Zophar's second speech. His friends have been trying to point out, since all these bad things have happened to him, it must be because he's acting wickedly somehow. This kind of thinking is embedded in our nature. Have you noticed that? The idea that if you do good things, God will give you what you want, but if you do bad things, God will punish you. When things don't go your way, do you ever wonder if God is punishing you? Maybe it's because of that thing you did, or if you can't think of anything you've done wrong to earn this treatment from him, you may start to wonder why he's not holding up his end of the bargain. If you're not careful, you may find yourself living out the same mindset Job's friend had, thinking that if you walk uprightly with God, you can use that as a bargaining chip to get what you want from him, because surely good works equal a happy life, right? The Bible recap says this, Job's story points out the error in our thinking. And it also points out the true wickedness that lies at the heart of our motives when we try to use God as a means to our desired end. In chapter 21, Job offers a rebuttal to his friend's claims. When he's talking about the wicked, he said, They say to God, Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? Then Job marvels. Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? You don't have to look very far to see wicked people prospering. They're amassing fortunes and living their dream lives, all the while cursing God. The reality Job brings to light here is that our lot in life is not a good way to determine the state of our hearts. Good things do happen to wicked people. You've probably witnessed a lot of the same things Job mentions here. Maybe you've even been frustrated by them too, wondering why do the wicked people prosper? It doesn't seem fair. But if you remember what we've learned about grace and mercy and what we think we quote-unquote deserve, you realize just how much we don't want what's fair. In the grand scheme of things, don't you want God to call you out of your sin? Do you want to wander off in callousness, doing whatever you want with no regard for God, like the wicked people Job describes here? If you want to walk closely with God, 
you can see it's his kindness that prompts us to repent. When I see that God actually lets these wicked people have their way, forgetting him altogether, that's what punishment looks like to me, not the troubles that I encounter that teach me to rely on God and help conform me to his image. Job's story reframes the way I view trials and punishment and God's goodness. It rids me of any notion I have of fairness or what I deserve. Full stop. Wow. Okay, friends, with these thoughts about fairness and what we deserve now swirling around in our minds for consideration, I feel this is the perfect place for us to close our time together today and go into a time of prayer. Father God, we confess there are days when it feels like you have forgotten us, maybe even abandoned us, because this battle has raged on for so long. And we confess there are times we get tired of hoping, weary from waiting, and we wonder just how much longer it will all go on. Thank you for reminding us that there is purpose in the process and that we're not walking through any of this alone. You are our strength. You are our hope. You are near. You are our Redeemer. Help us fix our eyes once again on your promises no matter how long the suffering lasts in our lives. And remind us to keep our hope tied to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Bible readers. Have you noticed a shift in your heart about your desire to dig deeper into God's Word since we started? If you're further behind in your studying with us than you want to be, no worries, my friend. The fact that you're here today is a good sign. Keep showing up. Lean in. God's leaning in, too. And why don't you leave a review on this podcast? Asking for a friend, of course. (laughs) Truthfully, though, I'd love for you to rate and review Open Our Bibles Together on the platform where you listen. Five-star reviews are my favorite, of course. (laughs) They encourage me and they help other incredible people like yourself find the show and decide if they want to listen or not. It sounds simple, but your review actually helps others connect with God through Bible study alongside us. Wouldn't it be great if more people fell in love with their Bible the way we have? I think so, too. So please rate and review today. Plus, um, I'd just love to hear from you, you know? This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.